Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So, friend, what is astonishing you this week? Well, what I am thinking about and what is astonishing me are the same thing this week. So I will talk about both. Um, As you know, and as our listeners know, I've really been struggling with the racism in our society over these past few months. And, you know, I've had to con- had to confront my own trauma of both racism and uh, police harassment. At times I've been deeply, deeply depressed, at other times just enraged. And part of my story that I haven't shared, and I don't know if I've even shared this with you, but part of my story is that Um, I was born in the all-black town of Mound Bayou, Mississippi, and by the time I was in elementary school, my parents moved into a white neighborhood just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and my sisters and I had a babysitter across town in the black part of town, the black neighborhood. So from early on, I can remember going back and forth between communities, and at times feeling rejected by both, right? So when I was at home in the neighborhood where we lived, there were times when we wanted to play in someone's yard and someone would come out, an adult would come out and say, you guys can play football or baseball in the yard except for you and point to me, right? And I knew what that was about even- Unbelievable. As a you know little child and so I, would go home. And then there were times when I was in the black community and I remember, and this is so hard, I remember being um, picked on, ridiculed uh, about my speech. Why do you sound white? Why do you dress that way? And you know, I was a nerdy kid. And so I remember long, painful periods of time where I just didn't feel welcome anywhere. I didn't know um, where I belonged. And um, so this season has, has brought that up. And it's just been really hard for me to, you know, just wrestle with all these emotions and memories and this painful stuff that's in the past. And what's been revealed to me once again is the why behind my imposter syndrome. And for those who are not familiar with that, the imposter syndrome is this um, subconscious voice within that says, um, you know, you don't, you don't belong in the room, right? When you enter a room of people, it's like everybody's smarter, everybody's better, you don't fit, you don't belong. And um, I remember being a child and um, not feeling like I belonged anywhere. And I concluded, the revelation that came to me the other day is that as a child, I concluded 
that I should be small and not seen. Now, when you have the imposter syndrome and you're introverted, I mean, that's just a, a deadly combination when, when you're in leadership, when you, um, when you have gifts um, and you have um, passions and things you wanna do. I find myself constantly self-sabotaging, you know, my, my progress, my success, because there's this subconscious thinking that says, I don't belong. Um, and, you know, my procrastination is really self-sabotage. My perfectionism is really self-sabotage. My over-preparation is self-sabotage. Uh, my not asking for what I want is self-sabotage. My fear of other people's opinion of me is self-sabotage. And so um, I've really been wrestling with these issues and it's really been hard and painful. But something amazing is happening in this season. Uh, the other day I had a conversation with my coach uh, Tom Bandy, and he said, Yolanda, let's just review the past couple of years of your life in ministry. Like you've done all of this work to learn um, audio, um, you are podcasting, you have done all this work to uh, understand videography, and uh, you've got stuff on YouTube. You are making some real important progress in terms of your gifts and skills and talents, and I totally didn't see that. The other day, you and I had a conversation that just was such a blessing to me. And you probably don't even realize it. But we are preparing for a conference that we have later today. You and I are workshop leaders at this conference on intercultural ministry. And you said to me just two days ago, um, well, you, you recalled some stories that I've told you in the past about my life in ministry. And it just struck me, holy cow, I've got something to say. <laughs> I, I, I belong in this room. And um, so what, what is astonishing me and what I'm thinking about is in this season that's so hard and so painful and so um, filled with trauma, the Holy Spirit is using it to help me become more of my true self. And it's, it's amazing. It's hard work, but it's amazing. So that's, that's what's astonishing me. That's what I'm thinking about. Well, that is a real honor to hear that part of your story. So thank you. And I, um, and I'm just like, I am grateful for that witness to just like, you know, this, better than I do but like you know this passage just like the Isaiah passage talking about like you know finding treasure in the darkness and just this mm. idea that like something to hope for in the biblical sense of the word hope um is that this is a really hard season for and and, and harder for some people than other for sure um but it's a really hard season for um people just personally and and organizations and nationally and globally, it's a really hard season. And so the, the hope would be that 
you know, there's real precedent that out of this hard season, you know, treasure comes that it, mm-hmm. and, and I think, um, a friend of mine, I think it might have been my friend, Elizabeth, shout out to Elizabeth, <laughs> told me once about a friend of hers who was going through a really hard season and her prayer was just, God, don't let any of this pain be wasted. Like mm, this is a really that's painful good. season. And so you can't, I mean, you can't always pray to get out of it. I mean, you can, like, obviously prayer is not magic. You can pray to get out of it. But if, if, if that is not the deliverance, then to pray to say like, okay, I, please don't let this pain be wasted. Um, and just, so that's just really beautiful. And I think one gift of your story, um, and, and I hope this is not reductionist or inappropriate. I don't think it is. But I mean, I think it's important for white people who are really being um, compelled to, you know, walk down this path and um, really name some truths that are pretty um, intentionally invisible or unspeakable in our um, cultural circles. And one of the um, the costs of that is that you will you will also feel like you don't belong anywhere. Like mm-hmm. if you say certain things and make certain choices, I mean, even if you just like want to go to Thanksgiving dinner and you're not going to talk anything like choices that you've made outside of the dining room are just going to make it difficult for you to just seamlessly go back into that space or it's going to make Bill have resentment or tension in the room. And I mean, I think it is just um, a true thing that sometimes we have to accept that we don't you know, that, that we don't feel like we belong in any space because, I mean, I think, um, again, it's not the same at, and at all, and I don't mean to equate it, but like, you know, white people trying to do the work of allyship in a very real sense, like, I mean, we're still never going to fully belong in communities of color, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you're still, you know, that's not why, you know, you don't get cookies and, you know, you still have to earn trust and, there's still a sense that like, no matter how much you want to renounce and move past, there's just some brokenness. I mean, whatever, nobody owes us anything. So you won't really belong in communities of color. And you also will sort of give up your shibboleth mm. in the cultural spaces you were born into. And, and so like, I think it's important for, for that just to be named and also to recognize that like, I mean, as we've been saying in other conversations, like, this is not unique to white people. I mean, this is sort of a manifestation of the brokenness of the world that people of color have been dealing with for forever. And all of it is not based on what, what should be, but just kind of what is because of how long brokenness has been allowed to fester and masquerade as wholeness. And there's just a lot of, um, healing that has to be done and that is painful so um, yeah so what is astonishing you this week um well the main thing that is astonishing this weekend i mean we don't have to go into big detail about it but i'm so so happy that for the first time since march whatever sixth um I, I got to go to the seminary library in my mask <laughs> and do some sermon prep. And um, I'm so, I'm just so grateful 
um, to have this little tiny piece of something that that is just such a gift in my weekly routine and to have that back um, I don't think it improved my sermon at all this week but um, like I really um, you know I I just think it's really hard to sit with the idea that this is um, going to last a long time and that there will not be you know one year, two years. I mean, there will, there will be things that will just be different because we've all been through this experience together. Um, but not everything will be different. And I just want to just notice and astonish, and I just will never take for granted again, um, that, that I get to do this. And like the the funny thing is it's, it's not like I, I mean, I don't think I took it for granted beforehand. Like I, would take a picture of my stack of books almost every week and put it on Instagram. Cause I just like, think it's such a privilege really to be able to be in conversation with people about scripture that you'll never meet in real life. And to be able to be in conversation with, with saints who have gone before generationally, and just to be able to look at the ways that um, the truths that scripture has revealed. And also just to be able to see kind of human fingerprints in the text, which studying judges for this week there were definitely a lot of them <laughs> so anyway i just i'm just really 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 um grateful and astonished and happy to have that piece of life restored and celebrating it and um it's it's not a little thing it's a really big thing and i'm astonished and grateful So what are you thinking about? Well, honestly, so I, this Sunday, um, we're in this worship series called Holy Uncomfortable and just really looking at the idea, which is everywhere in scripture, that what is holy is not always, but very often deeply uncomfortable also, right? So that people mm-hmm. who are having a holy encounter with God um, are, are in real close proximity to the divine or, or who are receiving a holy revelation, um, that, you know, sort of look back at it and go like, Oh, that was just glorious and amazing. But in the living it out, it was deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And just trying to get people to connect those two experiences, the experience of discomfort and the experience of holiness, because I think too often we have this disnified version in our heads of what it feels like to be in relationship with God. And so when we get to a place of deep discomfort, um, we immediately turn around and run the other way. And we think, you know, that can't be God. That can't be God. And so I I need to get out of here. God would never ask me to feel this way. Mm. And so just trying to, trying to get people to notice that. And obviously with a caveat that not everything uncomfortable is holy. I mean, some things that are uncomfortable are bad and the Holy spirit is telling you get out, run in the opposite direction, but not everything that's uncomfortable is unholy either. So anyway, um, this week I, we are looking at, um, Judges four, so the story of Deborah and Barak, um, but also just um, kind of judges the whole thing of judges um, and the whole way that, in my opinion, um, you know, the the people of God were given the covenant by Moses. I mean, through Moses by God, basically told like you're, you're I'm sending you into the promised land, but you're not to live like the other nations. Like here's this wholly different way to live as a covenantal people where, you know, God will be your King and your God and every aspect of your life will be um, mediated by God's values. And so there are just things that will seem very normal in other 
countries and nations that will that you will not do because you are a covenantal people. So um, not just how you pray and how you sing, and even you know everyone is familiar with the Jewish dietary rituals, but but also I mean, but those things I think were there to continually remind people of their of their call to be a peculiar people and a set apart people so that, that when they went to do things that we consider secular, like commerce or um, whatever family dynamics, that we, that those things would be formed by our, by our understanding of the holy as well. And so just things like, you know, the, the book of the, um, or the covenant in Deuteronomy, like you're not allowed to build a wall around your field or around your vineyard. Why, why can't you build a wall around your vineyard? It's because you're not allowed to shut out people who don't have property. Like you have to leave a portion behind and let people come and glean. And like, even things like, you know, the, um, uh, Levitical marriage practices that like, if your brother's wife dies, you're not allowed to just be like, I'm sorry, if, you're, if your brother dies, you're not allowed to say to his wife and children, like, good luck with that. You have to take them into your family. You have to care for them. Um, so just, just, you know, year of Jubilee, like if you buy somebody's land, you can use it for, you know, for a couple, for years, but eventually you're going to have to give it back. And so things will get reset. And um, the idea that you can loan someone money, but you can't charge them any interest because you're not allowed to profit off of somebody's misfortune. So anyway, all kinds of stuff that we, we very early decided like, that's cute, but no, <laughs> like, that these are metaphors and not an actual way of living, but, but they were meant to be an actual way of living um, that then would make the nation of Israel a light to all the nations and like, just show another way of being human in the world as mediated by God's values and not our own. Anyway, obviously didn't work out too well. (laughs) People came into the land and they um, forsook the covenant and just started to say like, now we get our turn and we'll build our own empire. And, and the book of judges is really God's fail safe for that. I mean, God understanding that of course that once humans have freedom, they're going to try, I mean, whatever God was paying attention in the garden of Eden, like you said, don't do that, but you give people freedom. They'll try another way. And so the people got into the land and they immediately, not immediately, but they, they, after a time, you know, began to just sort of say like, well, how about if we try living like the Canaanites or how about if we try, you know, worshiping, taking the values of that culture instead of our own. And, and so there's this, you know, reset fail safe cycle in the book of judges where the people sin and they turn away from God and then God um, delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And then the people suffer for a while and then they cry out for deliverance and then they get a redeemer and that redeemer is called a judge and the judge um, is a sort of a liberating warrior to deliver the people from the external threat of this invading army or whoever but then also um, in the classic cycle stays in a in a in a position of authority um, and becomes um, something that is a little more akin to a traditional judge in that they deliver the people from the internal threat of you all have lost your covenant faithfulness. And so now people in the community who don't have a voice can come to the judge and say, you know, this powerful person isn't keeping their covenantal obligations to me. And like the, the judge after dealing with the external threat then is around to deliver that, to, to deal with the internal threat, which is, you know, not, um, establishing God's justice and righteousness in the land. And, and when there's justice and righteousness in the land, then there's peace. And when there's not justice and righteousness in the land, there's not peace. And that's just what we see in the book of Judges. And, and one of the things that when I was at the library, just 
um, one of the things they're really talking about, like the, the job of the judge in the book of judges, um, is to deliver justice. Like it's just this idea of actual justice and justice for the powerless, because people who have power can get justice for themselves, right? So that is the idea. And what I'm thinking about long way around the barn, um, but I'm thinking about Breonna Taylor this week because I'm from Louisville. And so in Louisville um, this week, Breonna Taylor's family received a large settlement from the city of Louisville, $12.5 million and some police reforms, although those I mean, I don't know what they are. I don't know if they've been named or not. Um, but I mean, I think it's really interesting to watch different groups of people react to that. Um, because white people I know in Louisville, I mean, whatever, there's a, a breadth of opinion among white people, but some white people I know in Louisville are like, how is this happening? There hasn't even been a court case filed. Like this is very quick because there hasn't been a process. And of course, Black people I know across the country have been crying out for justice for for months. And so their experience of what happened this week is many things, but quick ain't one of them. <laughs> That's and, right. And I, and I was sort of talking with some folks on Facebook this week, and one of my friends is a lawyer in Louisville, and I was just sort of pointing out the non-original thought that it's really interesting that what happened to Breonna Taylor was both not you know, not so egregiously wrong that the officers involved would be charged, charged, but is so egregiously wrong that the city will pay out $12.5 million. And that just the tension of like, either, either this is okay, or it's not okay. But how, like, how can it be both? Like, how can the city recognize this level of um, harm and injustice? And so make this payout, but not Anyway, and so it's really interesting because my friend who is a lawyer um, is, was saying like, you know, pointing out what is true, which is the law says <laughs> that these officers, I mean, they were following the law. Like they, they were doing exactly what their job required them to do. They were told, here's a warrant, burst into this apartment, arrest these people. You, it's a no-knock warrant. You, you have permission to go in. And when a gun is seen and or fired upon an officer, according to the law, the officer is legally permitted to fire back, even if someone gets killed, like that is the law. And it was just striking me to like read about judges and the idea that in, in, covenant, in the covenant, the law written, we believe by God, um, exists to create justice and justice on behalf of the powerless and oppressed. And, and the reality is like my friend who was talking about the law in Louisville, I mean, like she's not wrong. That is the law, but the law is very disconnected from just the elemental concept of justice. Right. And so we have this legal system that exists at, on its, its best aspiration is to deliver is to administer the law impartially, but the laws themselves are not impartial. And and you know, I'm both my parents are lawyers. I have lots of friends who've been to law school, and so like I really understand that one of the things that law students really have to wrestle with at the beginning, and like the just the the preset that you have to accept to be part of the legal community in this country, is that 
the law matters, but justice doesn't. Like whatever anybody's mm. concept of justice is, is not relevant. And like a, a situation can on the face of it be unjust, but if it's legal, then then the system has no way to address that. And it just struck me like listening this week to these two different groups of people, like for many white people, what happened to Breonna Taylor because it is legal is just. And so they just don't understand why people are crying out for justice because in their experience, whatever the law says, when it is fairly applied, that's justice. And I mean, as a white person, I mean, there's just a self-interested way that that is understandable, right? Because Mm -hmm. the laws are set up to favor white people in this country. And so then when, when people are crying out for justice for Breonna Taylor, I mean, the fact that what happened to her was legal is not relevant to this cry for justice, which I think is an incredibly holy and righteous cry to say like, And it's not even, and I I was saying, like, it's not that I want, I I mean, whatever, not that what I want is so important, but I don't want vengeance. I don't want the officers who were unfortunate enough just to be the employees who drew that duty for that particular night. Like, I don't need them to be crucified for the sake of the system, but but I do want people within the system to be held accountable or for the system to be publicly acknowledged as like, okay, if this is legal under our system, then our system has to change. And that's what I don't see happening at all. And, and I, and I also just really um, think that it's incredibly just poignant to me that, that we don't understand as a nation as a community, as a people, this cry for justice, some of us, especially as some of us also, some of the same people who don't understand are people who claim and, and, and sincerely are following Jesus. And so just, I mean, just this idea that like God, when God speaks of justice, it's not justice for the landholder. It's justice for the people who are landless. Like justice is always a reign to protect the powerless from the powerful in the biblical story. And then the, in the democratic process, laws are written by powerful people. And so by default, they come to protect the powerful from the demands of the powerless. And like, I mean, that's just the way that humanity works. And I'm not saying that like, oh, the powerful people are morally worse than the powerless people or the powerless people are morally superior to the powerful people. I'm saying the revelation of scripture is that God is saying these sorts of um, breakers and defaults need to be designed into the system or else you'll have a, a country that is, is legal, but uh, you know, legalizes injustice. And like, well, the, clearly that's what's happened. Yes. This reminds me of, all of the laws that were passed in the 80s and 90s uh, to be tough on drugs, right? The, the war right. on drugs. And what they um, did was they did great harm to black and brown communities um, because- Intentionally. Yes. Intentionally. Uh, because uh, white lawmakers wanted to appear um, hard on crime, tough on crime, and um, 
and and we thought uh, drugs were primarily um, an inner city problem. And so let's get tough on drugs. Let put pe- let's put people in jail for small offenses. But then we had methamphetamines. And that took hold of rural white communities and suburban white communities. And now we're talking about treatment. This is a sickness. These people need help. And more than that, now we have attorneys general filing suits against the pharmaceutical companies that pumped these drugs into communities and saying these powerful companies um, abused their power at the expense of individual citizens. So it's not that like the legal system never protects the powerless from the powerful, but only if those powerless people also happen to be white. And that's where I was going. If the murder of Breonna Taylor had happened to um, some suburban white woman, we would be quick to change the law. Well, and the one woman, I think her first name was Justine. She was a white woman who was killed in Minnesota by an officer, Noir, 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 who was a, a black, a person of color, a black man. I don't, I think that he was, um, I don't think he was African-American. Like, I think he was an immigrant who joined the police. Anyway, uh, he killed her accidentally and he is in jail, mm. right? So, I mean, that is absolutely the case that like, I mean, we all say like, well, there's nothing we can do when officers perceive threat, they're allowed to shoot to defend themselves. But apparently a white woman cannot be threatening, but a black woman or a black man, their bodies are mm-hmm. weapons. So I'm just saying like, it's, it's A, this idea that the law, I mean, the law is not even administered impartially, A, but even if it is administered impartially, it is created consciously or unconsciously to favor white Americans. And I, and I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, Kaya, and she's a college professor. And she, she was saying a student had asked her a question about affirmative action, a student of color, and sort of said, like, I feel um, like, I don't want people thinking I'm here just because I'm a person of color. And she, I mean, she's a brilliant professor. And she said, well, let's interrogate that question about is affirmative action fair. And let's just notice that, I mean, the, the the history of affirmative action in this in America has been for white people like like for like and she said like we don't need to talk about affirmative action being unfair in universities as long as there are legacy programs because that's affirmative action for white people but mm-hmm. writ large the whole the whole country starting with some people were counted as full citizens and other people were counted as three fifths of a citizen mm-hmm. like this country has does have a history of affirmative action it's just the people in power haven't seen that they were preferring one people group over another people group because they didn't see the other people groups as people groups. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they were saying, this is me impartially administering the law to all people because they did not see black and brown people as, as humans. And that's just, you know, it's really hard to have your eyes opened to the level of brokenness that has been real in our nation all along, which, I mean, brokenness isn't the only true thing about our nation, but it, I mean, it's a, it's, it is something we have to reckon with seriously. And, and we can't, we can't understand why we are 
where we are right now and we can't fix it until we understand our, like, not that you need. Well, and so there's this never ending struggle to um, seek justice. And I think it's interesting because when you talk to lawyers about justice, I mean, my experience is <laughs> that they sort of roll their eyes at you like, oh gosh, that's cute. Like you're so naive, mm. you know? And I mean, I just think we as, and in fact, I was talking to my dad who is a lawyer who I very much love. And we were talking about the Breonna Taylor case and I was talking about, you know, what people want is justice, not the law. Apply. I mean, people want justice. And he said like, well, you've really drink, drunk the Kool-Aid, haven't you? And I'm like, I mean, if the Kool-Aid's justice, then yes. Mm. I mean, but I think that, you know, like people look and go like, well, this just isn't practical. Like we just can't. But again, like if it were your basic rights being systematically violated by the system, it wouldn't feel like drinking the Kool-Aid to be insistent on like, I'm a real human and my rights need to be protected by the laws too. But because white people, like we just can't imagine any other way of being a nation. And so that is scary. I mean, and that's fine. But I mean, as people of faith, we can say, look, I mean, the design for humanity, I mean, A, whatever, this is going on too long, but it's not democracy. It's, covenantal accountability between people and God. And so, you know, we should be unapologetic about saying we want the laws to, um, to, to conform to justice. <laughs> and I think obviously, can we have a conversation about what justice is as an abstract ideal? I mean, sure. Um, but we should at least be having that conversation instead of just dismissing it out of hand as like, mm -hmm. that's something that children talk about or poets talk about, but it's not something to build a system around. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what a conversation we could have if it were around justice for the vulnerable in society. That would be an amazing national conversation. Well, and I think like just, I mean, whatever, and then we can get off of this. But like, I think one of the problems is it's not that I don't understand the vulnerability of police officers. I, I really do. Um, but I think as long as we have a system that when something like this happens, everyone who is involved with the perpetration of the tragedy just gets to return to life as, gen then there's no incentive within mm -hmm. powerful people to go like, how do we make sure that this place that we're going to break into in the middle of the night is the place where we're trying to go. How do we make sure that the people inside, um, you know, I mean, because I was, again, I was talking to my dad and he was like, well, these officers, like they broke in, that's where they thought they were. And somebody had a gun, like they're allowed to shoot back. And I'm like, I mean, I get that. But at the same time, people sleeping in their homes who have a gun, when somebody bursts into their house in the middle of the night with guns at them, they have a right to pick up their gun and defend them. Like, how is it that we live in a society where it's legal for George Zimmerman to leave his home and follow Trayvon Martin and shoot him with a gun? And that is legal, but it's not legal for Breonna Taylor's, I mean, whatever, it is legal, but, it, but you know, somehow to taking out a gun to defend himself in his own home justifies Brianna Taylor being shot dead like that is a problem and if we can't even name that as a deep injustice then like I mean if we can't name it then we sure can't fix it mm. 
that's what I'm thinking about this week. And wow, let the church say amen. Well, I don't know if the church is going to say amen, especially <laughs> tomorrow. Although I did not talk about Brianna Taylor in my sermon because I really do try to not uh, to just introduce the biblical concepts and then teach people how to see biblically and then hope that when they look at what the conversations that the world is happening, they can go, wait a minute. Where's justice in this? Or, you know, every, you know, anyway, so um, you, you, uh, what are you preaching about this week? I am preaching Luke 11. Uh, sermon is entitled um, Shaping the Future with Prayer. And uh, we're looking at uh, the place where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Uh, there's the Lord's Prayer. There's the story about the friend who comes at midnight uh, knocking on the yeah. door. Uh, love that story. And he keeps on knocking, even though the friend says, I can't get out of bed. My children and I are in bed. I'm not going to give you any bread. But the friend keeps on knocking. And at the end of that um, section, Jesus says, seek, ask, and knock. Um, and so I'm just going to talk about, um, you know, in this season, when there's so much in our society and in our lives that um, is beyond our control, we really do have a resource that is powerful enough to shape the future. I mean, it's, it's not that we simply pray and um, do nothing, but prayer gives power to our seeking justice. <laughs> prayer gives power to all the things that we are um, um, called of God uh, to advance in the world. And so prayer is really uh, a partnering with God to advance God's kingdom agenda. And so um, just looking at the text as, as you know, how, how do we shape the future through prayer? And Jesus seems to be teaching that, that, that kind of future shaping prayer is, first of all, prayed with a radical dependence upon God, right? That's, it seems to me that so much of the Lord's Prayer, that, that we are children seeking our, our, our heavenly parent who, and, and we're just needy, we need God's intervention, but also uh, Jesus is teaching us to pray with this um, extravagant, this wild boldness. That's the story of the friend knock at midnight, that we, we are to ask big things of God, right? God, bring justice, right? It, I don't know how to make this happen, um, but I know you can. And so use us to accomplish your will uh, in the world. And um, finally, the text, um, uh, Jesus seems to be teaching us to pray with a sense of, of expectation, right? If you ask, God will answer, you'll receive. Seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. If you pray, God will do something. And he says, you know, you are evil, but you, even you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God give good gifts to you? And so when you pray, you just got to trust that God will bring about good. God will do good. And uh, it, it seems to me that Jesus is inviting us uh, to pray in a way 
that that shapes the future. So that's that's what we're preaching on Sunday. Well, I mean, I think that's really great because, I mean, what Jesus says is the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is among us. And so praying is one way. I mean, I just think a lot of believers have been taught to just make their peace with the way things are. And so we don't pray for justice because we just think like, well, justice, if, if it's, if it's a thing is a thing for the next world, not for this one. Absolutely. And and so just this idea of saying like, Hey, we have to know that what we're living in is not God's design for um, community. And, And that's not to say like, it's, whatever, that's not to be anti-American. That's just to read the Bible. Like, it's just that this is not, this that we believe is the best we have to offer is the best that's possible is not God's design for humanity. And then prayer is a way to continually center ourselves in the realm of God and the kingdom of God and the values of God, which, which keeps us from making peace with the world as the way, the way that it is, right? And making peace with the systems. Like I think too often, we have enmity with people and peace with the systems. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to be exactly the opposite. We're supposed to like be peacemakers with humans and have enmity with these death dealing systems and saying That's like, good. I get that if you're on the other side for me. That doesn't mean that I'm holy and you're unholy. It means that this system has opposed us to one another. And what I want is not to break you, but to break the system. And I think too often, you know, we've been taught that that liberty and justice for all is something you say in the pledge, but not something that can happen in actual, in an actual human society that for some people to flourish, other people must not be flourished. And our answer to that is meritocracy, meritocracy. So it's going to be the people who deserve to flourish will flourish. And the people who don't flourish, it's their own damn fault. And they weren't that important anyway. And so to say like, no, we believe in the witness of covenant that, that God's shalom allows mutual flourishing of all of creation. And so protecting the rights of the widows and the orphans and the strangers is, is interdependent with my own flourishing and not opposed to it. Anyway, we've talked a lot and we said we were going to make a short podcast. So thanks for listening. And if you want to hear Yolanda's sermon tomorrow, which I definitely think that you should, I should, you can um, watch the Derida Church YouTube channel, D-E-R-I-T-A, He's making his cheerleader hands again. Um, you can listen to his podcast, which is on the Podbean website, Derida Church Podcast. And anything else? What else? Oh, and you can go to Google and Google Derida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina and get kicked over to their website. And if you want to know more about what is happening at The Grove, um, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, we'll be live streaming the worship service tomorrow at 10 on the Facebook, as long as they allow that to happen uh, and for as long as they continue to allow that to happen, but that's another conversation. And the sermon, I mean, God can make a donkey talk, so maybe you'll get something out of it, but it's not my favorite, but it will be on iTunes very soon. Uh, the Grove Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.